Be Christ's church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. This morning, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4, which is, is not the Psalms, but Peter references one of the Psalms uh, earlier in his, his book. I wanted to take the occasion this morning of setting apart men to serve as deacons to, to really think about all of us and our role to play in the church. And the, the title of the message is Be Christ Church, Pray, Love, Serve, but in light of the song that we just sang, you, you might want to call this message, How to Speak the Name of Jesus as a Church. How do we, how do we declare who Jesus is as a church family? And we're going to be, as I said, in 1 Peter chapter 4, we'll consider verses 7 through 11. If you don't know where 1 Peter is, it's in the New Testament and it's toward the end. You'll go First and Second Timothy, Titus, Philemon, James, excuse me, Hebrews, James, 1 Peter. You get to 2 Peter and into the Johns, you've gone too far. 1 Peter is a, a letter written from the Apostle Peter urging churches who are facing intensifying persecution. He's telling them to remain faithful to Christ and his call to live differently as we live together in this fallen world. And before we get to the text that we're going to read, I want to set the context. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, all the way through verse 6 of chapter 4, Peter is focusing on how Christians should think of and relate to the hostile world around them. In chapter 2, verse 11, he reminds us that we are outsiders. Don't waste your time trying to be at home in the world where you're an outsider. In fact, he calls us strangers and aliens. We're aliens in this world. Why? Because we're in Christ and the world is set against him. And as outsiders, what we are called to do is to live for Jesus by keeping our conduct honorable so that as the world scoffs at us, some might end up turning to Christ and being saved. So what, do we, what does this look like? I'll hit some highlights before we, that from Peter before we get to our text today. So here's some highlights. We, we submit to governing authorities. We submit to our bosses, even the not-so-good ones. We live differently from the world in our marriages and in our families. We endure unjust suffering with the hope that by doing good, we might put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, chapter 2, verse 15. And as we conduct ourselves honorably and often counterculturally to follow Jesus, we don't, we don't want to be hurt, we don't want to be harmed, but we know that we might be, and, and, and should the world harm us, Peter says it's better to suffer for doing good if it should be God's will than for doing evil, chapter 3, verse 17. There's, there's no promises, there's no guarantees that following Christ is going to lead to a, a rosy life in this lifetime. And in chapter 3, 
to encourage us to live honorably in a world where Christians may, may indeed suffer for doing good, he quotes from Psalm chapter 34, a psalm that we just covered a few weeks ago, and he, and he quotes from that psalm to remind us we can live for the Lord with confidence that his eye is upon the righteous and that his face is against the evildoers. In other words, life might be a challenge now, but God sees and his people win, so remain faithful. If you say, well, that sounds a lot like the psalms that we've heard over the last several weeks. Exactly, right? God sees, his people win, so remain faithful. Don't give in at the last minute to worldly living or worldly standards or worldly expectations in order to be accepted in the world. Hear this, citizens of heaven should not expect to feel at home in a hell-bent world. Citizens of heaven should not expect to feel at home in a hell-bent world. And there's a lot of people who know Christ, but they're really busy trying to make this world feel like home, and they've forgotten that you're going to feel at home when Christ returns. So when we suffer for following the Lord, Peter reminds us the Lord we serve understands. We don't serve a Lord who doesn't know about suffering. In fact, we serve a Lord who came and suffered and died for us. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So because God and his people ultimately win, and because we serve a God who knows what it's like to suffer, we can suffer for a little while for a Savior who suffered to deliver us from sin and death for all eternity. We can refuse to give in to worldly living and worldly standards as we strive to love our neighbors and our enemies, and we don't do it alone. We do it as a team. Beginning in chapter 4, verse 7, Peter turns from our lives in the world to our relationships with one another. Would you hear with me the word of the Lord? The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we want to shout you from the rooftops. God, we want North Roanoke Baptist Church to be a church that speaks your name boldly, not, not just with our mouths, and, and indeed we want to do that, but also with our, with our lives. God, orient us today. Any, any part of us that is not aligned with your glory, help us to live in such a way that everything would be done to the glory of Christ and that you would get the glory you are due from your bride, the church. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. The first thing I want to show you uh, is in verse 7. We need to remain clear-headed about eternal realities and pray accordingly. Did you know there's a lot of distractions out there? Have you ever felt that press in your life within a week's span to really be distracted from Bible reading 
or from thinking about your church family or thinking about eternal realities. I mean, there's a circus out there all the time, right? I mean, Sunday to Sunday, there's something else competing for our attention. And yet, what Peter tells us is to be the church that is shouting Jesus from the rooftops is we've got to remain clear-headed about eternal realities, and we've got to pray accordingly. In verses 5 and 6, Peter talks about judgment that's going to come upon the world at Christ's return. And then in verse 7, he declares the end of all things is at hand. His point is that the passing away of the world system and the return of Christ to judge the world in righteousness, it is near. It is close. The return of Christ is near, church. The return of Christ is, is close, The world lives in ignorance of the nearness of Jesus' return, but the church must not. We must not be found asleep at the wheel, acting like, oh, Jesus is never going to come back. His return is near. And the nearness of His return motivates us to endure hardship now and prize the church in the meantime. Hebrews 10 tells us that as we see the near approaching, and can you see the near end approaching? Can you not see that it's nearer than it was yesterday as the world continues to devolve and to drift further away from Christ? As that happens, what does the true believer in Christ do? He longs to be in fellowship and in congregational worship with his church family. As you see the end approaching, so much more ought you assemble we are told in Hebrews chapter 10, 24, and 25. Now, the return of Christ has been near since the time of Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. As we saw in Acts, we are living in the last days. Sometimes you'd be like, Pastor, uh, people come to me, Pastor, do you think we're in the last days? Absolutely we're in the last days. We have been since King Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's coming back. We don't know when, but it's going to be near. The application of this truth, of the nearness of the return of Christ, is not that we we would create charts and tables and try to identify the date of Jesus' return. Did y'all hear that? Some people got, you know, they got a chart in the back of their Bible. Well, I guess that chart was wrong because this didn't happen. Listen, that's not how we're supposed to read the Bible. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 42, Stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. So if someone teaches you that Jesus is going to be back tomorrow or on a particular day or in a particular year or in a particular decade or within a certain time frame, walk away. We don't know the day and we're not supposed to try and figure it out. Since Jesus ascended, the end has been near. And the nearness of the return of Christ is to inform the action of the church until he comes. 2,000 years after his ascension, the return of Christ remains near. It may not seem near to you, particularly as the world seems to spin ever more away from moral sanity, but when Jesus returns, whether it's this afternoon or another 20,000 years from now, his return will be sudden and his verdict will be final, and compared to the eternity that awaits on the other side of his return, it's going to seem like it happened really, really quick. So what is the application for the nearness of Christ's return for the church? We must be self-controlled and sober-minded. Self-controlled means not to be rattled or distracted or disturbed or confused. 
Sober means to, to not be hysterical. It means to give full attention to the realities that come to the surface when we understand the end is near and we know that Jesus makes all the difference. And we need this clear-headed resolve not to win an election, not to attain popularity in the world, but why? Why do we need to be sober-minded? Why do we need to be clear-headed about what really matters for the sake of our prayers? So that we would pray rightly so that we would pray meaningfully. The the pressures that come upon the church are real and fierce because we are living in the last days of a cosmic battle for the destiny of God's creation and the fulfillment of His plan. You ever seen a, a boxing match that goes the full 12 rounds or 15 rounds and there's one guy that somehow has hung in there for the full fight. It's, you know, two heavyweights going after it, but one guy is clearly winning the fight. And the other guy, what does he do in the last round? He knows he can't win the boxing match on points, so he comes in and he's just trying to land a haymaker. I mean, he's just aimlessly throwing stuff, just trying to win. That's that's what the devil's trying to do to the church right now. The guy's whooped. He doesn't stand a chance of winning, but he's, he's trying to land a haymaker in the last days. He's trying to make you depressed. He's trying to make you dejected. He's trying to make you distracted about everything else under the sun rather than the sun who is over the sun and outshines the sun and is coming again for all the sons and daughters of God through faith in him. Satan's trying to knock you out. So you got to pray clear-headed prayers about eternal realities and not underestimate your enemy and not forget that Jesus wins. So in Colossians 4.2, Paul puts it this way, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. In Ephesians 6.18, he teaches us to take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit to, to endure to the end. How? By praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Is your life saturated with prayer? Are you in the world of distractions? Are you praying Prayers of devotion to your king. The the prayers that are being commended to us in this passage are prayers that recognize the threat that the world poses while being confident of the outcome Jesus secures. They are prayers of spiritual warfare against any enemies who want us to quit before the finish line. Jesus himself taught us the right response to the nearness of his return, did he not? Did he not teach us to watch and to pray? Our our job is to remain alert to ourselves and to the gospel and to pray for His grace and strength to remain vigilant in the spiritual battle until He returns. It is to pray we would not abandon or dilute the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. It is to pray that our children would not be trapped by the lies surrounding them and that we would have the wisdom to know how to raise them to know and love Jesus. It is to pray for boldness, to share the gospel despite the risks of sharing the gospel. It is to pray for a holy resolve to do the Lord's will and magnify Jesus at home and at work and at play so that we will be awake and expectant when our King returns. It is to pray for unity in the church and submission to one another, to God's leaders, and ultimately to His Word. It is to ask God to continue to give us grace to do His will when quitting seems easier. We're to be a praying people. The temptation for us, church, is to fall asleep in the last days. 
It's to give up, it's to throw in the towel because of the challenges all around us, but we must lock into what truly matters and we must pray accordingly. Our time in this present age is short and we need to pray with the resolve, a holy resolve to make the most of the brief time that we have remaining for the glory of God. And as we pray, we think not only of the hostility that's out there, but the responsibility to love right here. That's what we see in verses 8 and 9. We must love one another selflessly. Verse 8 begins with a, a bit of a play on words connecting back to verse 7. Verse 7 tells us the end of all things is near. And then in verse 8 we read, before all things. Right? So there's, there's something that you can be about right now that's even before in its importance the end of the age. And what is it? It's, it's loving one another. What does Paul tell us about love? The, the triad of Christian virtues. There's faith, there's hope, there's love, but, but what's the one that's going to endure for all eternity? Because there's one day we're not going to need hope anymore because we're just going to be there with the king of hope. There's one day we're not going to need faith anymore because we're going to see him face to face, but we'll always have love. Love one another before all things. Before all the stuff that will soon end, before the calamity and the cacophony of noises in the world that are competing for your attention, don't forget to love one another. Peter understands the stress and pressures and temptations that come in these last days will threaten to cool our love for one another. Indeed, Jesus warned us in Matthew 24, 12, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. So Peter urges us to be a community that defaults to giving love to one another earnestly or constantly since or because love covers a multitude of sins. Where, where is the community where sin is squashed rather than amplified? It's in the church. Where's the community that doesn't harbor grudges and harbor hurts? It's, it's not in the world, it's in the church. Schreiner writes this, Peter is clear that love covers over the wrongs of others. While those who are full of hatred use the sins of others as a springboard with which to attack them. The world is busy keeping score on who is the greater victim. Are you all aware of this? There's a whole, there's a whole philosophy of thinking about how oppressed you are is, what, is the points you score in society for employment and for everything else. That's, that's an anti-gospel system of thinking. It is not a system of thinking that ought to be in the church. The world is busy trying to keep score based on who's the greater victim, who's the most oppressed, who's the most hurt. But in the community of the king, we bring, bring our hurts to the king who was crucified to bring us together. We look to Jesus who was truly innocent and treated horribly to offer us forgiveness. And we extend a similar selfless Love and forgiveness to one another as we repent and forgive and point one another to Jesus. The idea that love conceals sin is not that it, it ignores it, but that it forgives and eliminates it as a point of conversation or complaint or concern. In marriage, I've had the opportunity to do some marriage counseling and, and I have discovered that sometimes we like to hold on to past hurts to bring them up as a weapon 
at just the right time. Your marriage is starting to go well. Things are starting to improve. And then that knuckle-headed husband, he forgot to take out the trash. And then that becomes a series of what my dad, when he was pastoring, used to call the bring-up file. I got, I, got a, I got a whole file system in the back of my head that I'm going to bring up about what you did last year, last month, last week. We've already talked about it. We've already resolved it. We've already identified forgiveness and healing. But I'm going I'm to bring that joker up because now I did something wrong. And now that I did something wrong, i got to bring up something that you did wrong so that we can talk about our wrongs all day long. That rhymed. It wasn't intentional. Brothers and sisters, in our marriages, we've got to throw away the bring-up file. In our church relationships, we've got to throw away the bring-up file. The idea that love conceals sin is not just a doctrine with Peter, right? It's a biblical doctrine. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12 says, Hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers all transgressions. In Proverbs 17, 9, we read, Whoever conceals an offense promotes love, but he who brings it up separates friends. The church is not a place where hurt never happens, but it is a people willing to confess, forgive, and move forward together because we've been so lavishly forgiven in Jesus who gives us a supernatural capacity to love and forgive as he loved and forgave us. To love one another like Jesus is to give up our right to languish in our hurt. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't languish in his hurt and his offendedness as a reason not to forgive us? Where would we be if Jesus held the hurt that we caused him against us? We'd be doomed and damned forever. The end is near and we don't have time to waste harboring past hurts among brothers and sisters. Instead, we love as Christ has loved. As those who've been forgiven much, we must forgive much. Luke 7, 47. And in a way that requires similar selflessness, verse 9, we also demonstrate love for one another by showing hospitality to one another without grumbling. In the early days of the church, Schreiner says hospitality was particularly crucial for Christian mission in a day when people couldn't afford lodging. In Acts, we saw the hospitality of Lydia. Do you remember Lydia in Acts 16? Opening her home to host the church at Philippi. In Paul's missionary journeys, we see the hospitality of churches towards Paul and those who are traveling with him. In Acts 2.46, we see the growing church in Jerusalem was going to the temple together and then routinely they would share meals with one another in their respective homes. Hospitality is something that, quite frankly, we've largely lost in our culture and I believe we need to reclaim it in the church. I think the watching world needs to see the church being a family more than just at the church building. Hospitality is formed from two Greek words, loving strangers. Loving and strangers is the composition of the word hospitality. Are you willing to love strangers? Are you willing to get to know new people? As the church, by God's grace, grows our fellowship, are you willing to be hospitable, to love strangers so that strangers might become friends in the gospel? 
Hospitality is not presented to us as an option, but it's something that is urgent, something we do with intentionality as those in the last round of this cosmic fight for the glory of Christ. And as a church grows and reaches new neighbors and the next generation, our job is not to complain that we don't know all those new people. Our job is to take them to lunch. Is this on? As Michaels writes, hospitality is simply a concrete expression of mutual love among Christians and therefore belongs with love. In other words, hospitality is the obligation of every Christian. It's not, oh, I don't have the gift of hospitality. Every Christian is charged with hospitality. Now, the reality is not everyone has a a home for hosting, but the willingness to shed some privacy and be inconvenienced for the sake of the body is something that every believer needs to cultivate. You can cultivate this heart in a variety of ways. You can cultivate this mindset by stepping up to help plan the next event for your 3D group. You can host students at your home for one of their Sunday evening table talks. Let Ethan know you're willing to do so. You can volunteer in the kids' ministry to meet new young families even though your kids are grown. You can step out to welcome a guest. You can invite that family out to dinner whose names you keep forgetting. And of course, you can open your home to others to cultivate friendships anchored in the gospel. And when we do these things and others like them, we're called to do them without grumbling. Why did Peter have to put that in there? Man, can't I just do it and check the box and say that I did it? Got to clean the bathroom. Got to find out what allergies they have so I don't make something that they can't eat. I mean, being hospitable is an inconvenience. Are you willing to be inconvenienced for your brothers and sisters? And are you willing to let Jesus, because the only way it's going to happen is through union with the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ, Are you willing to let the Lord give you joy in that? Some of my favorite things to do alongside of Stacy are when uh, the schedule clears enough for us to have somebody over. Because, man, we got to clean the house. And, hey, the house needs to be clean anyway, but now it's it's really clean. And it's like we're on mission together to be hospitable. Let Let the Lord give you joy in hosting your brothers and sisters in Christ without grumbling. God, give me a joyful heart in the act of hospitality. In act, you can cultivate this uh, in a variety of ways, and I know that God, the God who saved you and who calls you to be hospitable, will give you the grace to do so. So to be Christ's church, we offer sober-minded prayers, understanding the end is near. We live in a way that sins are covered and everyone is embraced in the community of Christ-driven care as we love each other selflessly. And then finally, in verses 10 and 11, we see that we use the gifts that God has given to each of us to serve one another by relying on God's strength and focusing on the worthiness of Christ we got to use the gift that God has given to us. On a, on a day of setting apart deacons, I want to make sure we don't just focus on deacons. I want to remind you every Christian is called to serve their local church. Let me say that again. Every Christian, if you know Jesus, if He's your Savior, and He's called you into fellowship, then, he, then I know He's called you into fellowship with a family, 
He has given you a gift to be used in service to your local church. There are no exceptions. Nobody's excluded from that. You say, well, what about Sister Sadie who's at the, the rest home and she can't even attend worship anymore? You know who some of the best prayer warriors for North Roanoke Baptist Church are? They get that prayer guide faithfully and they read it and they pray over it faithfully and they can't be with us this morning, but they're still serving their local church. We know every Christian is supposed to serve because verse 10 tells us each, meaning each and every believer, has received a gift that is to be used in service to one another. In 1 Corinthians 12, 7, Paul puts it this way, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And we are to use the gift that God gives, verse 10, as good stewards of God's varied grace. To be a good steward means to use something for the purpose for which it has been given. If somebody gives you a baseball bat and you use it to hit a home run, you have been a good steward of the baseball bat. If you use it to destroy my mailbox, you've been a bad steward of the baseball bat. Does that make sense? Stewardship is using something for the purpose for which it was given. Gifts are given to believers not to call attention to themselves, but for upbuilding, for promoting, for edifying, encouraging their local church. It is the local church where we are called to fulfill the one another's of Scripture. It is the local church where we are happy to serve in obscurity so that the glory of God may be plainly seen through the church. So whatever gift or gifts we have, They are nothing to boast about. They are simply gifts that we receive from a gracious God who was under no obligation to give them to us. They're not something we earn. They're not something we deserve. And praise God, He gives a variety of gifts. Why? Because the church needs a variety of service. As Schreiner writes, even though every believer possesses at least one gift, the gifts are not necessarily the same. God manifests His grace in various forms, so the diversity of the gifts that he gives reveal the multifaceted character of God's grace. God, God is a, a God of diversity, and he gives a whole host of gifts to display his glory. So it is not just deacons who deacon. I want to make sure we get this. The word deacon means serve. It is not just deacons who deacon. Deacons are servants leading servants in service. Deacons are servants, leading servants in service, so that each Christian in the body may use his or her God-given gifts in service to the body. Then in verse 11, Peter places all the possible gifts that God would give to believers into two big categories. Do you see that in verse 11? So everybody's got a gift, and they're to use it in service to the body. And then in verse 11, he says, there's really two major categories of giftedness, and of service. There's speaking and there's serving. Now, speaking is a form of serving, but it is distinguished from all the other forms of service. And it is listed first because service that builds up the church must be anchored in God's truth. The service that flows from the speaking means the speaking needs to be anchored in the truth of God. In other words, God, through leaders who are gifted to speak His Word, then organizes and directs the service of the saints. Peter clarifies this structure 
over in chapter 5 when he calls upon the pastors to exercise oversight of the flock. Peter is implicitly urging us not to fall victim to the do something for the sake of doing something mentality. Have you ever felt that? And we just got to do something. The Bible doesn't want you to just do something. Christ wants you to do something productive and edifying and kingdom building. And it needs to be ordered by the Word of God and sound doctrine. Sound doctrine and teaching fuels the right deployment of the gifts of service for the glory of the Savior and the good of His church. Acts of service need to flow from and be grounded in God's truth. The truth about lost people will inform our praying and our evangelism. The truth about redeemed people will inform what we value and what we do or what we don't do in corporate worship. The biblical priority of love within the body for the body will inform our service and our benevolence strategy and so on. For this reason, those entrusted with speaking can't just stand up and give their opinion. They have to consider the weightiness of the responsibility of speaking. They must search the scriptures and apply the scriptures to their local church. Speaking not for themselves, but rather as one, do you see it? As one who speaks the oracles of God. As one who endeavors to communicate God's truth for God's people in this context. Because it is God's direction that must set the agenda for using his various gifts to effectively serve the church. Schreiner puts it this way, those entrusted with the ministry of speaking should be careful to speak God's words, to be faithful to the gospel. And it isn't just those who are entrusted with speaking who need God to give them grace for the assignment, right? Look at verse 11. Likewise, not just whoever speaks, but whoever serves does so not as one who has found the perfect ministry with the perfect fit. Anybody here waiting to serve until it serves your needs perfectly? Ouch. Where do you find that in the Bible? Where do you you find in the Bible that the service that God needs you to render is going to be amazing all the time and just fits your giftedness perfectly? You find it nowhere. What do you need in order to serve? Not just a gift, but you need the strength that God supplies. Because sometimes it's going to be hard. Sometimes it's going to be difficult. Sometimes a volunteer is going to get sick last minute and you're going to have to step in. It's ministry and it's murky and it's hard and you need the strength that God supplies. So there are two realities about service in the church. First, God gives you a gift for service. But second, his gifting doesn't mean that you aren't going to need his ongoing strength. If our service is, about, is not about the body, but it's about our ability, we quickly start to think that our service is about us. It's, it's our ministry. It's, it's my ministry. It's look at me. And we soon forget the giver of the gift and the one who gives the strength for his assignment. It is of God. It is for God. It is from God. And when we work in his strength, it is God who gets the glory. God through Jesus Christ. Do you see the, the benediction here, the, the closing prayer of Peter? God, through Jesus Christ, receives the glory. He receives the glory because He's the one who provides the wisdom and the strength for ministry. The provider is always the one who gets the praise. May God help us, North Roanoke Baptist Church, to be a church that is all about the glory of Jesus.
This morning, I want to urge you to see the connection between serving your church and the glory of God. God is glorified through Jesus Christ when the whole church serves in His strength, under His direction, because it is shown to the watching world that we don't have to be seen, but we exist for the glory of our King, and we do so under the authority of His Word, in connection to and accountability with His local church, because that's where it is shown that Jesus has what? Glory and dominion now and forevermore. So how do we respond to today's message? Is the world driving you crazy? Honestly, does it have you distracted? When's the last mind, when's the last time you've offered to the Lord clear-headed, sober-minded prayer for your family, for your kids, for your pastors, for your 3D group, for your grandchildren? When's the last time you've taken some time to give God clear-headed, sober-minded prayer knowing that the end is near? You know the answer to that question. For many of us, it's time to get in our prayer closets and to pray. Secondly, are you harboring a hurt or a grudge that it's, it's high time to let go of and get moving for the glory of God? Let today be the day. Thirdly, will you find someone you don't know in the next month and make arrangements to take them to lunch? Imagine the connectivity in our body if every one of us would commit in the next, next four Sundays, by, by four Sundays from now, I'm going to take somebody to lunch and we'll get to know them. And finally, if you're not serving, but you do know God, maybe you don't know your gift yet, but it's time to get serving and trust God to give you the giftedness and the strength for the assignment. I would love to talk with you. Ethan would love to talk with you. Any of our pastors would love to talk with you about how it is you can serve. Church, there's a temptation in the last days to quit just before you reach the finish line. Let's go all in for the glory of King Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, our Father in heaven, we want to speak the name of Jesus, and we want to do it in how we pray, in how we love, and in how we serve, and we want to do so because, God, you're worthy of all the glory that you would receive as your bride magnifies your son. So God, I pray as we sing this closing song, that whatever it is you've called us to, whatever step of obedience you would have us to take, whether that involves coming forward and joining the church and trusting Christ or just walking out of these doors and, and applying what we've heard, I pray that we would not lose sight of this sermon and that you would give us a holy ambition and resolve to glorify Christ in whatever it is you're calling us to do. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.